Hey friends, welcome to the Sacred Story Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Wilcox, and I'm so glad you're here. During this time, we carve out sacred space to reflect on our God-author stories, to hear from women in the chapters of their stories, and to think about God's greater story around the world. I'm excited to introduce ordinary yet brave women who are declaring God's faithfulness. I'm honored to be on the journey with you. Here's this week's episode. Today on the Sacred Story Podcast, I'm excited that we have a woman who is living her story well with grace, truth, and authenticity, among other things. And I've been so looking forward to this conversation, and I just want to welcome Becky Allender. Thank you so much for being on the Sacred Story Podcast. Oh, Laura, I'm so grateful to be on. Thank you for asking me to be with you this this time. Well, you know, I know we connected through one of the board members, actually, of Sacred Story, who heard you in person speak and just really was drawn to your heart and your love for story and your vulnerability. And I also then read your book. And so now I feel like I know you. I feel like we've had all these conversations. (laughs) But I so appreciate your book and just the way that you write. You describe your seasons and your heartfelt, you know, passions and your griefs and just very well. And it was a delight to read. I didn't want it to end. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. It's just um, an unusual thing that I ended up writing a book. I do think it was the obedience uh, that I felt Jesus wanted me to do for him. And so um, it's in, in that way, I knew what I was going to write, but I never thought about what it would be like after it was written. So this is just one of the surprises um, being on a podcast. So thank you again, Laura. Well, it's so fun. And I feel like with your book, would you describe it as a memoir? I do. Yes, it is a memoir. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was thinking as I know you just talk about different stories and chapters of your life. And uh, to let those who are listening know, Becky's book is called Hidden in Plain Sight, One Woman's Search for Identity, Intimacy, and Calling. So I thought, gosh, I love your title. And it's it's a, a rich title. Explain a little bit more about just hiding. You talk about hiding as a child and how that affected your adulthood. Yes. Um, I guess I took it for granted it's not until you're older you look back, but um, so I was born in 1952, and so my parents had been children during the Great Depression, and they had um, been been through the World War II, and mm-hmm. I think they had a lot of trauma uh, in their own childhoods where they weren't attuned to from their parents very well, but I didn't know any of that when I was young, and I just... My mother always had so much to do. She was a stay-at-home mom, but she came home like many people after the war and began um, working with the symphony or working with the art museum, a new wing there, a Buckeye Boys Ranch, which was a a home for um, parentless boys and um, working at the church, any way she could offer her help. Um, She always had things to do. And I think, um, I think she just had so much to do that she was a perfectionist too. And with, I just realized if I was out of her way, it would be a lot better for me. And so I, I, I did go outside as much as I could as a very young child. I just, I had a lot of criticism from my mother throughout my entire life. And so that was part of it too. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the path. I ended up just staying out of her way, and that that continued. Yes, and I resonated with that. I've had um, some of the similar emotions that you experienced, the similar fears, and, you know, in my own story, desire to kind of just be hidden so there isn't negative attention. And so how does that affect, would you say you, though, as you grew older, when did you start to realize, oh, I'm, perhaps, you know, hiding as an adult? Um, Well, my mother and my father were very big presence in my life. And then I married a man. I married Dan, um, who also kind of would take up the presence in in a room. 
And um, so I kind of transferred from one place where there wasn't much opportunity to speak to another place where he was always speaking and inviting people <laughs> into our lives. Right. So it just seemed quite natural. And then I, my firstborn child was quite um, able to tell me what to do all the time. And so I just found <laughs> that I was uh, living that way with hardly realizing it, actually. Sure. Was there a turning point when you realized, oh, I, I could find my voice or I could you know, be... Yeah, there was. Um, about 10 years ago, we started the Allender Center. And this is under the umbrella of the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. But the Allender Center uh, focused on um, more trauma care. It's actually called the Narrative focused trauma care. And so I was the intercessor for this. We started in St. Louis and then we had four years in Chicago and now we've been doing uh, four years here in Seattle. And so as an intercessor, I once again uh, was hidden, correct? (laughs) And (laughs) and my my work was appreciated. Uh, After that first year, I did... um, gather a team to have an intercessory team because we know it's not right to, to bear the brunt as the only intercessor in an organization. But as I noticed, um, people coming through this certificate program, they'd come through one way and they'd leave another way. And I, I wanted that for me. I wanted to um, be seen. And that's what I noticed the people coming for that care. They were in small Mm. groups and they were being seen. And Mm -hmm. so I had to ask, Hey, I'd like to go through this. And Mm. it basically being in groups has changed my life. Yeah, that makes sense. And sometimes we can just assume that people who are in the, you know, in the business of God's kingdom and, and helping other people, we can just assume that they've also had that opportunity to process, but sometimes not. Uh And, Um, I know that you talked about at one point, which I thought uh, was so helpful that you said some of the insecurity and even self-loathing that um, just came from the trauma that your parents had and they didn't have the the ability to bless or encourage or delight in you in the way that your soul longed for. And so um, how did going through the process of the Allender Center help you work through your own trauma? Well, one of the, um, how we do the groups is we're asked to write a story, maybe a childhood story, um, a tragedy, you know, not a Mm -hmm. a bad tragedy, not a really light tragedy, scale of one to 10, maybe, you know, four, five, and six. And so I wrote a story of going to the doctors as a very young child, maybe four years old with my mother, and just wrote about that one scene. And um, and the care that was given in a confidential setting was basically life changing. Of uh, their mm-hmm. eyes to name how how things had been, how I had been missed, how I was more comfortable when my mother was not in the room with me. Just simple things, but it had been a story that I had shame over. And so to bring a story of trauma uh, that you might be ashamed about, to bring it into the light with other people, and then you're listening to their stories too with a good story guide to help you, it brings light where evil has wanted you to cover it in darkness and feel you know, bad about it or feel like, oh, I wish this had never happened, but in a good, caring story context, it actually, you just see the work of Jesus through his kindness. And you're, it's, it's just like nothing I've ever done before. I love that. Cause that's my heart too, as resonates with sacred story of women who are able to process and pray through and see things and be able to receive the healing and the kindness and comfort as they share their story. And so I love that um, that you were able to go through that process, and so many people, it sounds like, are finding freedom and wholeness. And um, I know it's a lifelong journey. 
It is, yes. But it's so fun. It's just so good. It's um, uh-huh. it's it's what we're told to do: bear one another's burdens, and in this way, we we really do that. Yes, and amen. And so I think about this with sacred story, and then also as I process my own story. But I wanted to ask you, like, how do we honor our parents? And yet share about the pain and brokenness of our upbringing and the deficits that were there. I think I've also had other women, you know, wonder about that. So what would you say? That's a great question. I grew up hearing stories at our dinner table of their hardships of children. And my father's mother died early when he was 15. And my mother's father died when she was around 14. And so I always... um, would preface my own things with, well, this happened to them and this happened to them. And I had a hard time um, not excusing them. And I guess excuse is kind of a harsh word, but there was a time that these groups allowed where I could set them aside and um, just focus on me. And in that, I actually, well, and let me say this. I I wrote first uh, after my parents had passed away. And so I never did this when they were living for them to read this. I think I could let them read it now, but I do think that's part of the goodness of being in a, a confidential small group where, you know, that's very sacred and, and no one is going to go away and talk about your story. Um, but mine writing right. book was a bit different, but I feel that they're fully redeemed in heaven. I see them cheering me on, cheering me on because I, I see so clearly that they, they did not get the attention, the kindness, the delight, um, when they were young from their parents. Sure. And I remember you saying a couple times in the book that you love your parents more now that they're in heaven, like that love doesn't have an expiration date or a shelf life. (laughs) I really do. I I feel like they're with me. And if any listeners have parents who have died, they probably can resonate with that sentence. I mean, their goodness is, I'm so grateful for them. I, I'm so grateful for them and wish that they had had more care for their stories. And in that greatest generation, as um, Tom Brokaw calls them, they just, they didn't do that. They just mm-hmm. um, didn't do that. And it seems to be more in fashion today to do that. And it's, it's just so good. We even just see through science, neuroscience, that our brains do change when we can go back to these younger stories that are inside of us and are part of us. And if we tell them, it's helpful. And don't you think, for me, it's like living in a broken world. I even can mourn what could have been for my parents or somebody else that, you know, at times the mourning is, oh, this there could have been more care in the story, and that makes me sad. But then at the same time, there's joy. Uh-huh. It's just like that bittersweet of living in the world that doesn't work right. That's a perfect way to put it. It is bittersweet. Yes. Well, and I think you also talk, talk about being kinder to yourself as you live out the chapter of your story, chapters of your story. And I love that you use that phrase. What do you, what do you mean by that, being yeah. kinder? I almost think that's that's just the message of this book. Well, I even noticed I bought some um, really nice um, they're Dansko shoes and I thought they looked really cute on me, but they had a buckle. So I, I didn't wear them for like a year and a half. And it was like an aha moment of, well, sure. I just usually put on my clogs, run out the door, get things done. And I was like, I, I wasn't willing to sit down for a minute and a half and buckle two shoes. And so that started um, giving me an awareness how how impatient I am with myself, how 
kind I can mm. be to a grandchild and buckle their shoes, right? But if I'm not lickety split, <laughs> what's wrong with me? And so I saw this in other areas of my life that if things took too long, I'd get really impatient with myself or if I'd forget something, I've just, yeah, just, just had no compassion. And so it just little things like that are, are a clue. Like, are you being kind to yourself? Um, are you taking the time to mm. do this? And, and of mm. course, there's so many other examples. But I think, again, when we return to our stories, we, we realize that not only are other people broken alongside of it, 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 us, it is the human experience we have on this side of heaven. But we mm. also need to have compassion, um, not just for others, but ourselves. And in that mm -hmm. kindness, well, there's just so much more joy. And there's so mm -hmm. much, I would say, less anxiety for me, because um, I'm just part of it. It's just learning to be and to breathe and to walk and to notice. And I, I have this phrase, like, in the summer, I'd say to my husband, all right, I'm going to go be a human being. I'm going to lie down on the hammock for five minutes. And I can't tell you how many days there was no time to take five minutes to get on a mm. hammock. It's like, mm. what is happening with our culture? We're always rushing. So yeah. those are just some thoughts on being kind and how I'm trying to live differently. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, it makes me pause. And so about, am I living in a kind way with myself. And, and I like that you tell on yourself at times <laughs> in your book is uh, refreshing. So thank you. And I, uh, one of the conversations that stood out to me is when you and your kids came over and y'all had this set apart time that you ha as adults, they came over and how, um, your husband, Dan, who, um, you say he always asked good questions. Like he threw out a question to them about their upbringing. And, um, so tell a little bit about that. <laughs> well, it was an unusual time where our three children came home without their spouses and without their children. And our daughter, Amanda, was going to be moving to New York City. So we really saw this dinner as it, a time that we might not have this uh, um, for a long time, just the five of us. And so we asked a question like, what were some of your disappointments about how we raised you as children? Something like that. And oh, that's opening a door. <laughs> well, well, I think Dan and I were both amazed. They, they, they went, they just ran with those questions. And I felt so foolish because I had done foolish things. Some like, you can't act that way. Your father's a professor. He's a seminary professor and just things that I did in my, desperation of being a young mother that just I was desperate for them to behave and mm -hmm. I did put too much pressure on them because I think that's how I had been parented you know you just mm -hmm. had to be as perfect as you could be so mm -hmm. the the conversation continued and got going more and more and um I I think I started to cry and I got defensive because I had tried my best. And my husband, who's so aware that once you're defensive with someone, like you've lost the battle. That's mm. the last thing. And, and he's good at not being defensive and just saying, yeah, I really did not do that well. And, and so it was a time where I could see a lot of my failures. I could own them, but I, I and I could also then realize they still loved me, but it was it was realizing that I had taken too much of my own identity from my children and how they lived as when they were in our house. And anyways, it was a fiasco, <laughs> but <laughs> but it was good. It was good. I mean, Dan and I failed our parents too with how they wanted us to behave. And, and when you just level the the ground, you you just yeah. have more compassion for your mistakes and to say I'm yeah. sorry. So true. Just those honest conversations that sometimes people will never have. And I just love that y'all had the conversation and were able to, you know, process with each other. I'm really glad too. And I, I wish such a conversation could have happened with my parents. You know, I really mm -hmm. sad, but 
I don't know if they could have not been defensive <laughs> because again, it was, it's the generations are different. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of, you write about facing death at one point with you and Dan on an airplane, actually, which I thought was a fascinating story, but then also walking through the death of your grandparents, your parents and in-laws. And so talk a little bit about facing mortality. How does that impact our story? or And how have you grown through, you know, the, the mortality of those that you love? Yes. Um my father died first, and um, I think you can't be prepared for it. I remember Dan saying mm. that it was a club. When his dad died, um, gee, about 27 years ago, he said, Becky, it's a club. It's a dead parents club, and you can't belong mm. until it happens. And and so yeah. I, I, when my father was dying I was in hospice care with him for 19 days in a facility outside of our home and um, I had just never seen more tenderness uh, that the nurses had for my father and I just saw just like he never had a chance to have such tender words and and the experience for me losing him was was just very very hard we all walk through these. Um, mm-hmm. deaths. We don't know what they're going to look like. But in losing him, um, I was so curious. It was while he was dying, I found a diary in his closet at home. And it was from the time he was maybe 16 years old until he was in the Navy. And mm-hmm. all these questions, when I got to read his diary of being a newspaper boy with two newspaper routes and the hardship of that. I just like, why didn't we walk those streets together? Why didn't he tell me where those families were? Because we lived nearby where he grew up and all these questions I wanted to ask now it was too late. And Mm. so I just didn't want my children to feel like that. They, I didn't want them to feel like I felt like, like, why didn't I even have the curiosity? And I think, mm. I think in, in losing parents, you know, it's like you won't know. Like you might find papers, but to have those conversations, if possible, to be curious. But mm-hmm. yes, it's, it's different on planet Earth without <laughs> parents. It is. And being mm-hmm. the, um, the older generation now, it's, it's, it's a little different. It's a little shakier but it draws us closer to Jesus. I felt his presence so clearly with Mm. my parents' death and Dan's parents' death. I just, I knew that God's time was perfect. So to, Mm. you know, not not have any regrets, regrets over that, like his timing is perfect. So you mentioned sharing stories for the next generation and, I think that that's so beautiful. I'm sure that your children and girl, grandchildren are going to be so glad you, well, one thing, wrote this book. <laughs> yes, yes. And that was scary. All of a sudden it was out. But um, they they are proud of me. And they, the, especially the daughters and daughter-in-law, they kind of stayed up all night and texted me in the next morning that, that, that they loved it. So I felt such, um, well, I was really appreciative of that. That's great. Okay, let's switch gears on to the green monster of jealousy. Yes. (laughs) I know that this is something that all women or those of us would struggle with at some point. And so I love how you talk about um, overcoming jealousy and mentioning that it's more than just practicing gratitude. So what, what was your road, a little bit of your road with you know, jealousy as well, an adult. I, um, Dan and I had um, over a decade of infertility problems, and um, it was just a, a journey that we were on. And I really wanted to have children, and it was not easy. We had two miscarriages in between our first two children, and one before all of them. So it was um, a very intense struggle for for both of us. And I would notice like we ended up, you know, thankful for three and calling it 
three, this would be our family, um, that I was like staying away from people who had four children because I, I really was jealous. I really was envious that, or if I'd be around someone and, oh, my husband wants me to have another baby. I'm like, oh, oh I would love that if my husband mm. had said that to me. And, mm. and a lot of it was just stopping and then taking care of like, well, the desire to have another baby wasn't like wrong. And so to tend to that ache, yeah, this was my Mm -hmm. desire, but not, not God's plan, not my husband's plan, not what seemed to be our plan, but not just push it away and and then hate myself for this struggle. I'm, I'm sure I felt like that when I only had one child for five years, I would be jealous of children, you know, mothers having more. So I think that's just one example of how to care, to care for you when you are really struggling, because um, there's not equity on this side of heaven. And so we do find ourselves Mm -hmm. um, in places that we feel like we didn't get enough. Yeah, I mean, and I've struggled with women because I'm single at this point, but women who are married and like, oh, they have this partnership and then this person with them. And that can be a struggle to feel envious. And, and yet, I like what you said about embracing the ache or the, you know, that there's an ache there. And that's a good, it's not bad. Um, And would you say that uh, doing that through prayer is, is how, you know, how we embrace the ache? I, I do think that's certainly through prayer. I also, I've been so um, amazed at some of my older single women who've been, they actually teach and they teach about their ache. They teach about the desire and Mm -hmm. don't let that desire die because it's so painful to keep that desire. And uh, I don't know if that really helped them. But certainly there was the care of those who were listening to be praying for that person and always also to just say, I see you and how brave, how brave of you to speak of this desire. And even you, Lord, just now, how brave. Because we, because sometimes I, I didn't even want to tell people I was trying to get pregnant. That's how painful it was for me. Mm. I didn't mm-hmm. even want them to know because I couldn't trust my heart that it would be mm. handled. So it's it's risky when you're when your ache for something is really a good desire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what you're saying and keeping that alive even in front of people is is part of it's embracing huge. the ache. Yes, it's huge. Yes. And I know there are stories from Sacred Story Collection of just whether it's infertility or, you know, even like a health issue or whatever, just things that don't go and you want something different in your story. And so, or more fruition um, than what is there. Yes. And I, and I think to bring light to it again, is where you're not letting evil, you know, have a heyday with you, you know, to bring Mm -hmm. it to light Mm -hmm. and to be Mm -hmm. candid. There's a lot of times we're just not, we're not brave enough to do that and trust that, yeah, there's issues of the hearts for sure that keep us bound. And along those lines is the ability to live our stories with risk, and which is what you're talking about, even being willing to risk explaining that, you you know, putting our desires out in the light or, or our struggle with jealousy. But, and I actually sometimes think about how sacred if you rearrange the C, can become scared. And so, or scared places in our story can actually become sacred places. And so you talk about in your book that risking opens up a door to God's delight. What would you, tell a little bit more about that, because I thought that was such a great um, explanation. Well, I do think there's a lot of risks that God is hoping for us to do. I think there's nothing that we can do that would allow him to love us anymore than he does. But I think like for me, like no one really wants to be hidden. I mean, it's, it's painful to be Mm, looked mm -hmm. passed over or not noticed. I mean, it, it actually kills your soul in a sense to be um, not out there and and risking. And so 
but also I think Psalm 139, 17 and 18 speaks to how God see us, sees us. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than all the grains of sand on all the beaches of this world. And so mm. if he sees us with such delight and, and, and like he's just waiting for us to wake up and he's got, I mean, think mm. about all the sands on all the beaches of all the world. And that's what he says his thoughts are us are like. And so, so just wanting to be more out there, wanting to have more life and risking in new ways and becoming more visible or just putting your out yourself out there. I don't know. It's, it's exhilarating. It's exhilarating. And, um, just to recall that, well, if you fail, if it doesn't work out, like God loves us, he couldn't mm. love us anymore every moment. And so it's sort of freeing to um, yeah. step out in new ways, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I know you mentioned going on the uh, motorcycle ride up oh. to the <laughs> <laughs> the place where y'all fish, right? Uh-huh. I, I yes, I in have... New Zealand. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> that was a crazy time. Yes, yeah. I was so frightened and uh, and I wore nine layers and we'd get out and we'd fly fish and there would be cows that would like want to walk through the water. It was like freaky, you know, but um, yeah, just to like hang on to Jesus somehow, you know, if, if you're not being foolish, you, usually you can get through something that's hard. But yeah, I just started taking more risks and not wanting fear and anxiety to keep me back. I mean, this wasn't my idea to get a motorcycle and, and go around for three months on the windiest <laughs> island in the middle of the Pacific. I mean, you hardly see anyone who rides motorcycles there. But, but I, I really wanted to honor my husband's dream. So we lived yeah, through that it. Fun, <laughs> right? That was a fun story. And so when you talk about risk, you also talk about stepping on the neck of evil through your work with men and women and sex trafficking. Yes. What's yeah. that been like? Um, well, I think we all need a witness. We need a witness to our lives. And to me, I, I was called into this um, when our daughter, um, I think it was 2002, she went to an orphanage in Siberia, of all places. And she had like one teenage girl she was with for 10 days and another teenage girl and she came back so upset saying dad like these girls aren't going to go to college these orphan girls are going to be in the sex slave trade and that's actually language that wasn't there in 2002 she just knew that they were going to have to be prostituted women and she was furious about it and Dan happened to look at me. We were hadn't even gotten out of the parking lot of the Seattle airport. And, and and he said, I've got too much to do. And so then she looked at me and said, Mom, what are you going to do about it? So it was a journey that the two of us began doing together. And then God opened up an um, opportunity with an organization called ICAP, International Christian Alliance on Prostitution. And... Um, and going to these gatherings worldwide, people would come to this place um, in, in Wisconsin. Uh, there was a woman that was praying for an, another man, and I was quickened. The Holy Spirit quickened me to her voice, mm. and I thought, I have got to find her. I have got to find her. And here we were in Wisconsin, and there's 40 different countries represented. I found her. Lo and behold... She has um, a ministry in Seattle, in downtown Seattle. Mm. And so it was like in my back door, like, thank you, Jesus. So I was mm. able to volunteer with her and she, she had been a prostituted woman herself. That's part of her story, which she shares. But wow. she and another African-American woman, um, both out of the lifestyle, were my supervisors and 
the outreach program through New Horizons, which is about 38 years old in um, Seattle, allowed me to go stand on the streets. We'd be there from 9.30 at night until 3 in the morning. And mm. um, it was, it was. I mean, I like to go to bed early. And I don't like standing in the cold, but we would just offer um, hot chocolate, um, warm uh, heater, hats, mittens, things that other people had donated. And we were just, we would just be kind and they knew they had a place to get warm or get some hot chocolate. And, and if they wanted to leave their streets, if they desired to do that, well, then we had social workers in place. But mm. so I basically was called just to be a witness to their lives, to learn their names, to care about their children, to just to talk with them and offer them some warmth and care. And it was it was pretty life-changing to see what goes on late at night in our cities. And I really felt like I wanted the people in my church to know, let, let the church know what's happening. And that's actually how I began writing um, for the first time in my life, because I felt like if I was going to do that, I wanted, I wanted to tell other people what's going mm. on. I felt like that was mm. what God was calling to me to do. I, I didn't ask my supervisors if I could do that. And I changed mm. everyone's name and, and the city wouldn't have had any location that would be known. But yeah, I think sometimes God places on your heart something that you want to take a stand on and say, no, not on my watch. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I remember reading the chapters where you were talking about going out in the cold and the rain and being cold natured myself. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm freezing for her. Oh. Like I just, <laughs> oh my but I know that um, it's worth pushing through the it, it, circumstantial things. Yes, and it was just a beautiful thing to be part of a team, and we would pray for over an hour before we went out on the streets together. And boy, you—I mean, when you're doing something that you know that God wants you to do, and you've taken the authority and prayed about it, it was—you mm -hmm. know—I think the policemen and the undercover detectives thought we were crazy, and the pimps were out there. I mean, and the Johns driving around it. Mm. Whoa, my goodness, I saw so much and I, I really, I really had so much compassion realizing, hey, if I'd been born in a different neighborhood or different socioeconomic situation, I mean, that could be me. I mean, I mm. think I saw like we are all the same. We are mm -hmm. all so much alike. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the same desires and hopes and dreams yes. at the core. Absolutely. And, yes. Well, when you talk about, you talk about that fear keeps us from truly hearing the pain in another person's story. Why do you think this is? Because I thought as we think about sacred story and hearing each other's stories and sometimes I'm like, why does fear keep us from entering into the pain? Yeah. Well, I think, um, when we are in a place like sacred storytelling that you provide, um, it's, it's really hard to be vulnerable. But when you're being vulnerable, and if you're listening to that vulnerable person, sometimes it's really scary. Like, we don't want to hurt them. We don't want to hurt them more than the story mm -hmm. that they're telling us. Um, and, and so it seems counterintuitive to deep dig deeper into a, a story that speaks of sorrow to ask, how did that feel? And how is your body feeling? And can you, let's go tell me more. Um, recently we were with a friend who's had surgery 13 weeks ago and is not doing well. And, um, and mm. we went to visit her and we've been quite close with her during the 13 week journey but I was aware that my husband was much more able to go into how horrible it is and how suicide might be a thought. And let's talk mm. about the new normal. Like, the, think what a para mm. paraplegic had to do. Let's, and I wanted to see 
some of the, I wanted to encourage her for some of the heroic things she's been doing in the midst of this. And later mm-hmm. he said, do you see how that wasn't helpful? Like she, mm-hmm. she was in a deep place and that mm-hmm. did not help her. So I think the very thing that we don't want to do, we do sometimes without being mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. aware of the sorrow or the depth, like let them de- go deep into it because it's in that place of depth that they can really cry and mourn and see, feel God and hear God. And, and then mm-hmm. they can come back out. Like we tr- don't let people to dip mm-hmm. down into the sadness. Mm-hmm. We can't sit in the empath and be em- empathetic with them. It's a, it's uncomfortable. I'm telling you, it's not easy to yeah, stay in a place right. of such sorrow or, but, but I think with training, I've, I've learned, even though I messed up Monday night, I've learned more skills to um, be able to, oh, that's all right. This happened to me too. You know, do, not do any of that. Because that's kind of yeah. what we do at the grocery store when we see a friend who has something to share. We, we don't have time to go deep into where they need to sit. Yeah, that is important and part of being present with people in their story. So what are some of the equipping that you've received or practical tips about being a good listener? Yeah, well, I think one is um, you follow the uh, scent of contempt, whether it's self-contempt or other-centered contempt, because that is a track that will get you deeper into anyone's story. Um, and sometimes it's really hard to listen. I mean, in these groups that I'm facilitating, I've already read their story, but then to hear their story, I mean, you really have to kind of figure out, well, which is the best entry place? Uh, Mm -hmm. Where, where can that go? And then where will the next thing go? And so I think it's a lot harder than I thought, but I do think it's a teachable skill. And I do think what's modeled from people uh, like a story guide or, or just, you know, doing your own study, how to be a better listener and how to care better. I mean, you can get to that. And in that abiding in one another's stories, there's a depth in my group. I was just leading a group last week and, at the end, someone said, seven of you know me better than most of my friends. And that's because, and I know, Laura, you do this work, you provide a contained space of safety where you're able to share some really deep things that um, once you get a taste of the glory and the healing and then the communion that comes from that and then put on top of that God's care, it's, it's just like nothing you can't, it's like Mm. nothing that normal life seems to provide. Mm. And it's really, it's really, they say neuroscience shows that when we share these stories, our brains do Mm. change and um, the mirror neurons, which everyone has, like it's, you would see that in a nursery where an infant is crying and all the other little infants who are just mm-hmm. not even a day old might turn towards that crying baby. That's, mm-hmm. that's within us. And it's actually in creation. If you haven't heard of the book, The Secret Life of Trees, they talk about in Africa, mm-hmm. a grove of trees where a giraffe, all these giraffes start eating the leaves. Well, these mm-hmm. trees through their roots send messages down the way to the other grove of trees of the same kind so that those trees can put a sticky film on their leaves. So when the giraffes get to them, they don't want to eat the leaves. So I think creation and people, when we, when we're listening to someone and we're hearing them, we're empathetic. We our our souls, our hearts, resonate and feel seen by one another through our eyes and through our words. Mm, mm. 
Yeah, it is a powerful experience of the love of God and, and by and through other people. Yes. Yeah, we've actually implemented something at Sacred Story called a day retreat, and it gives women the ability to process their stories and be alongside each other. Wonderful. And so um, that's one resource that we have. Um, and I know that you all have the story workshop. We Tell do. a little bit about that. The story workshop um, is offered twice a year. I think this April will be in Chicago, and every August it's in Seattle. And it's um, sometimes people come with their friends, but they're always in different groups, of course, or a couple will come and, or will come alone. And they write a story ahead of time, about 800 to 1,000 words. And again, it's a story. It's not of tragedy, but it's not a horrible tragedy. It's not like nothing. But they bring a story, mm. and it's in mm-hmm. that three-and-a-half-day context. You've got teaching. Then you're assigned to a group. I think you're in the groups maybe four times, maybe five mm. in that time span, morning and afternoon. And and with the teaching that comes that teaches about story and attunement and honor and delight, I mean, if you mm. – you know, we were made for Eden, the Garden of Eden. and um, that's what our, that's what we are made for, but that's not how we live. So that attuning that you get in a small group with a story guide facilitator, um, allows you to see the, you know, what happened was filled with sorrow. And usually there's so many tracks that give uh, greater clarity to your family of origin, your parents, your sister and brother. Cause I think you're asked to bring a story from your family of origin because Mm, mm. especially uh, my husband's theory is that it's in our family of origin is where our roles and our style of relating, that's where it's crystallized. Um, So, um, so that's a little bit of what Mm -hmm. we do with story workshop. And, and at the end, it's usually quite glorious because, because there's a beginning and the end, and, and it's just amazing how we all end up in such a different place after such care with one another. Yeah, what a wonderful um, investment of time and just emotional energy to spend time, you know, pouring over one of our stories or with other people. And so I love that y'all do the story workshop. A lot of and- time. People yeah. come back year after year or bring their community. They're like, how do we do this at home? Well, bring some friends yeah. and then you can go yeah. back probably what you do at Sacred Story on your day retreat, Laura. You know, it's like yeah. catch the vision, right? Yes. And that was, that's been part of my heart. How can we resource people in their small groups or in their organizations or their churches so that they can actually process their stories together too? So yeah, I'm... Um, I'm loving, I'm loving the hearing, um, how things work out with y'all with the story workshop. And so, um, so the next one is in April of 2020. And then you said August, August. And also if you go to the allendercenter.org, there is a story sage online course. And so you can do that with a group from your church and there is discount for churches. So you could, uh-huh. Do that with a um, cohort, so there might be people from all over the world joining with you, and then there's some teaching, live teaching that goes on also, uh-huh. if you would like to do it that way. It okay. just helps you learn how to go deeper, and not only in your own story, but how to go deeper with other people, because that's what we're called to do, to care for others. Um, sure. Yeah, that's really helpful. So. Um, be sure and check that out for those of you listening. And also I want to ask you, Becky, just in closing, what blessing has been released in your life through finding your voice and sharing chapters of your story? Oh my goodness. I, I think, um, it is really nice to be seen. Um, it's nice to, uh, again, step out into the open more. And I, I think it's kindness. I just like, I have more and more um, empathy for my own self, why I have been someone who's been shyer than most or have more anxiety. And in that kindness, my body is changing. I'm so less anxious. 
I'm mm. so more able to, um, if I say something and think that came out wrong, it's like, I'm not willing to sit in that shame anymore. I think I'm just like in that kindness. I'm, if I do something wrong, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be ashamed. I, mm. I might ask for forgiveness or pray, but it, life is short. I think it's just being more fully yourself and saying, that's okay. This is who mm. I am. Kind of what Mr. Rogers tells those children, you know, just <laughs> no one else can be you, but you. So right there, you're the he- you're ahead of the game. Mm. So true. Well, thank you so much, Becky. What a wonderful time it's been hearing your heart, more of your life and your journey. And I just so appreciate all the wisdom. I'm a big fan of yours. I'm a fan of your book. I'm just telling those who are listening that this is a must read. And so I hope that y'all will um, go get hidden in plain sight. And um, thank you, Laura. And I just want to say, too, I don't really want it to be about my stories at all. I'm And there's a few free questions after each little small Mm -hmm. chapter. I want it to be about your stories. May my stories Mm -hmm. and the questions help you to dive in and start writing your own stories because my grandchildren aren't going to really know me. And, and when they want to, I might be in heaven or I might not Mm -hmm. be able to put sentences Mm -hmm. together. So it's really (laughs) one of the greatest inheritances that you can leave your family and your friends mm. on your friends. So that it just doesn't have to be a family. So Laura, thank Amen. you. And I love Amen. the work. Yes. Yes. I love the work that you're doing. I'm so excited about what's, what's happening. Thank you so much, Becky. I love getting to chat today. Yes. Thank you, Laura, so much for having me on. 